The media amplifies the ever-present danger of COVID-19 regardless of their age and circumstance. They are cheerleaders for the vaccine as the only solution to the unquestioned tyranny of government. But it gets worse as some in the media question whether harsher restrictions should be imposed to achieve vaccination targets. Lock them up. Throw away the key in some cases. Data on actual COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths, declining vaccine efficacy, growing vaccine injuries and deaths, the existence of effective early treatments and the true cost of government policies are ignored. Dr. Peter McCullough has been treating patients, researching, collaborating and publishing his findings since the virus first appeared. Dr. McCullough, thanks very much for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. The official VAERS reports are deficient, but can you tell us what trends are emerging on COVID-19 vaccine adverse events? You know, in the United States, we rely on the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS. In fact, the FAQs for the vaccines, as well as the consent form, point doctors and patients to look at the VAERS data. And it is a vast database. It's been around uh, for now uh, 30 years. And we know that in the United States per year, there's about 278 million shots given. That's before COVID-19. We know in the VAERS database, there's roughly 150 deaths per year that's reported, 16,000 safety reports. That's kind of the standard that we would see. Common vaccines, let's take the vaccine that our kids receive with a go to college, meningococcal vaccine, zero deaths. Well, what do we see in COVID-19 in the United States? Even at 27 million Americans vaccinated, we are already at 186 deaths. So we had already exceeded a confidence limit of security on mortality. And if, I think if we would have had a proper data safety monitoring board, critical event committee, human ethics committee, I think the program would have been shut down in February. But here we are eight months later, mm -hmm. uh, the CDC and FDA have given no press briefing on safety, no comprehensive report on safety. Americans have been stonewalled on which vaccine is performing the best, which one's performing the worst. And shockingly today, the CDC has verified over 13,000 deaths, 545,000 uh, certified safety reports, a couple hundred thousand hospitalization, urgent care visits. Uh, and, and so it's really a safety scoreboard, Mike, that's out of control. Look, there's, there's been numerous incidents of myocarditis in young males from mRNA vaccines. Can you explain what this is and the long-term effects are? Well, this news broke out of the U.S. military, and there were sporadic cases in Kaiser Permanente in the East Coast, West Coast, France, Israel. And uh, we understood that the genetic vaccines install the genetic material to produce the spike protein. This must be happening in the heart. And heart muscle swells expressing a foreign protein that's dangerous incites inflammation into the heart and damages the heart muscle, circulating spike protein may add insult to injury. But the CDC and FDA reviewed about 200 cases back in June. 90% uh, of these kids, they were young people, were hospitalized with chest pain, uh, EKG changes, positive troponin. They had early signs and symptoms of heart failure in about a quarter of individuals. It looked serious by these couple hundred cases. And that was enough for the FDA to say warning. They put a warning on Pfizer, Moderna, warning myocarditis could happen, anybody under age 30. And now fast forward, 
in the VAERS data system, as of August uh, 13th, we have over 4,000 cases of myocarditis, Mike. But the official guidance is that most myocarditis and pericarditis cases linked to mRNA vaccinations, they're saying they're rare and mild. And I'm probably referring more to the uh, TGA in Australia here. Uh, It's sort of like, don't tell the truth. Well, we don't know if they're rare because not everybody is checked for it. The only way the only way to, to consider it to be safe from an epidemiologic and what's called pharmacovigilance perspective is to say that this could be the tip of the iceberg. That's the reason why we have spontaneous re- re- reporting. So it would be irresponsible to say they're rare because we don't check everybody for it. And since the United States, we've seen 4,000 cases. That's not rare for anything. So myocarditis actually may, in fact, be common. Now, this next issue of whether it's serious or not, all we know is from the initial CDC FDA cases, these were kids hospitalized. It takes a lot to hospitalize uh, a young person. Like I'll tell you right now, that's not a trivial thing. So the EKG changes must have been dramatic. The troponin values concerning a potentially need for cardiac monitoring, heart failure medicine. I've seen a few patients like this in my clinic. I filled out the VAERS reports. I think it's serious, to be honest with you. I have them on heart failure medications. I'm following the cardiac troponins. It's not resolving quickly. I'm concerned some are going to progress to heart failure and have the need for uh, more heart failure medicines, potentially defibrillators, heart transplant. There's already been fatal cases in the United States and shown by autopsy. So I wouldn't say it's rare and I wouldn't say it's mild. The Pfizer vaccine has now been given full approval, inverted commas, but is this a different product that's unavailable right now? So uh, is it true that the product under emergency use is still being used? Well, the current Pfizer product, remember Pfizer and Moderna are very different. Moderna's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA per shot. That's Moderna. Pfizer is way less. Pfizer's 30 micrograms per shot. So Pfizer's a, a much smaller dose. And what we know is that, um, and I do this for uh, really my academic work. I've made presentations for the FDA. I've been on these panels. I've reviewed the briefing booklets. What should have taken place is a full briefing booklet from Pfizer, uh, and, and then the data submitted to the FDA, a full briefing booklet from the FDA, and then a presentation with an advisory panel. And there's core slides and a core set of material that's covered in front of an advisory panel to decide if the vaccine should be approved. None of that was done. We didn't see any briefing booklets made publicly available. We didn't see a product label proposed. We didn't see any integrated safety data set. We saw no consideration of the VAERS data whatsoever. What we saw was letters. There was a letter that went to Pfizer that indicated it was a continuation of the EUA and a separate letter that went to BioNTech that was an approval letter but indicated additional studies needed to be done on myocarditis and that another meeting was going to be held on August 30th, 31st. So I can tell you, this didn't look like anything like a standard FDA approval, but yet the talking point was out there that, quote, Pfizer has now fully approved. It looked like, honestly, it was a government-issued talking point without the full regulatory process being followed. The rest of the world, uh, referring to mainstream media, uh, fell for the trick there, and the government has come out and said nothing about that. So the implications or the, the belief that it's approved gives credence then that Visor or the vaccines are really, really safe. Uh, and you see the government here in Australia, as with the US now, they're encouraging businesses to 
mandate vaccinations. So what are your thoughts on this and what are the implications? It, it does seem really antithetical. You know, Pfizer, the lowest dose of the messenger RNA vaccines. We have real world data from Israel, uh, basically having Pfizer at 39% effective. Data from Rochester, Minnesota, Mayo Clinic, Pfizer 42% effective. Uh, you know, Moderna actually at 72% effective in the Mayo data. Uh, so it looks like we have the least effective vaccine uh, giving uh, a talking point in the media about being fully approved. And how is this going to work, Mike? Because now BioNTech, who's got the approval, they'd have to really kind of formally partner up with Pfizer and they have to sell the vaccine. So they have who's going to who's going to buy this vaccine when it looks like there's better choices? And on top of that, um, uh, the EUA products are offered free of charge. And how is Pfizer going to possibly market in this environment? It, it really looks uh, like it's completely confusing. It certainly is nothing that, that any type of employer could try to position a mandate for. Will full approval require enhanced vaccine safety reporting from Pfizer? And will indemnities be then removed? That, I don't think they are. The indemnities there are, are there no matter what. But there would be a transference of pharmacovigilance, which is very important. Right now, the CDC VAERS system is picking that up and there would be some diligence on Pfizer. So there would have to be some evaluation of causality. So right now, uh, the manufacturers have been somewhat uh, buff buffered uh, from that. So uh, we have to see how this works out. I, I really can't see how anybody would choose Pfizer based on the efficacy data we're seeing right now. Pfizer's in free fall in, uh, in Israel right now. 83% of all cases are fully vaccinated with Pfizer. Majority of people in the hospital, people have died Pfizer. So Pfizer is simply not covering it. Paper by Venkata Krishnan has shown antigenic escape. The Pfizer vaccine simply can't hit the antigen on the spike protein. It can't neutralize the Delta variant. Uh, finally, in Australia, as with uh, other parts of the world, they're all coming out and saying that the best form of immunity is from the vaccine. Uh, much better, the, uh, the newspapers and uh, media are reporting, much better than natural immunity. Uh, finally, your thoughts, and please don't roll around on the floor and laugh, please. Your thoughts. Well, Australians and Americans know that once you get COVID-19, you don't get it over and over again. We haven't seen our grandparents go over and over again. If it was possible to get COVID-19 twice, we would have had millions and millions of vulnerable people hospitalized over and over again with COVID-19. So COVID-19 immunity must be nearly perfect. That is, basically, people don't get it a second time. We had a paper from Shretha and colleagues, the Cleveland Clinic study. Uh, patients uh, recovered with COVID-19, 2,500 workers, go back into the workplace, zero cases of COVID-19. Mertu and colleagues uh, with less well-defined initial cases, even just positive antibodies, not clearly uh, documented cases, less than 1% uh, chance of ever getting covid in the future, 615,000 individuals across 11 studies. Natural immunity uh, is robust, complete, and durable. And during this time period, our CDC had 10,000 vaccine failures, 10,000. We haven't had one with natural immunity, Mike. 10,000 vaccine failures with our American vaccines uh, and about 9% hospitalized, 3% died. July 26, our CDC reported 6,000 vaccine failures, hospitalized, 19% died. That's not all the cases. That's just what spontaneously forwarded to the CDC from Departments of Community Health. So we have wide open vaccine failure and we have 
robust, complete, and basically bulletproof natural immunity. There's no question natural beats synthetic. You're about to roll into the uh, cooler part of the year, and um, Delta is uh, on the tips of every uh, Democrat's tongue. How serious is Delta, and how much are they overplaying this seriousness? Well, my views have been impressed by some of the patients I'm directly managing, Mike. And I tell you, I think the Delta is offering a new wrinkle. In a paper from Chow and colleagues from a unit at Oxford in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, they showed that in an outbreak where they locked down the workers so they couldn't get out, and they actually were testing the workers in this pre-symptomatic phase, and they all had Delta. They were all fully vaccinated with AstraZeneca, Mike, just two months earlier. So fully vaccinated young mm-hmm. healthcare workers they were carrying the virus in the pre-symptomatic phase 251 times that viral load compared to the pre-vaccination era. So vaccinated people are carrying Delta and they must be blasting the unvaccinated. And so the unvaccinated are getting big viral loads and we are seeing young people get sick. It looks like it's serious. We're having to use multiple drugs. We've had some people in the hospital, young people, and unfortunately, we've lost some patients. So I've really uh, developed a respect for the Delta outbreak because the vaccinated are contributing so greatly to this most recent twist and turn of the COVID-19 pandemic. Peter McCullough, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mass vaccination is taking priority over all government policy, despite evidence of declining vaccine efficacy and injury and death from COVID-19 vaccines. Employers around the world have taken the bait and are coercing their employees to vaccinate at risk of organisational unrest, mass resignations and possible legal action. Unsurprisingly, healthcare staff who understand the true risk of death from COVID-19 are again on the front line. Lauded in the fight against the virus at the beginning of the pandemic, many are being victimised by their employers. Brave professionals in the US are leading the way. John Matlin has been a CT technologist at Staten Island University South for 15 years and is the de facto leader of the hospital employees. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the situation at the Staten Island University Hospital following the mandatory vaccination order. Well, this started actually before the mandatory vaccination order. This started at mandatory PCR testing for the unvaccinated. I'm very big on patient care. So when, when you go into the healthcare field, you take an oath and it's to protect your patients and to do the right thing ethically. And when you when the the, the the management came forward with the idea of only testing people that were unvaccinated. It scientifically didn't match the data that was coming out. So it, like I always refer to Israel being one of the highest vaccinated states, uh, vaccinated countries, and you, you have really high rate in transmission of COVID-19 right now. There is forecasted that it's going to only get worse uh, with more shutdowns coming in the future. So you put yourself at a disadvantage if you don't take in the facts when you're processing science. So we have a, a situation that if they were only testing us for being unvaccinated, they were letting vaccinated people that were asymptomatically spreading it to the patients, the community and other staff members walk around as if they could not. So they were denying science. I brought that up to management. I sent an email to management along with the media because what happens if I don't include the media? I just get ghosted like a bad girlfriend. So 
once the media picked up the story, I got a chance to hopefully meet with the, the chief medical officer. But that all went away when they tried to silence me. Different topic. But during this, we ended up having a rally scheduled. We had the rally. And that was the day that the day, uh, two days after they decided as of September 27th in New York State, you cannot be a healthcare provider or work in a hospital or any institution medically without having at least one shot of the vaccine. So our rally went from mandatory PCR uh, testing that wasn't based in science to we deserve a right to have a job. So things escalated pretty quickly here in New York. The uh, story that we, we saw we, uh, and what sort of got us going, got our juices flowing was from the New York Times. The uh, New York Times says the area has a high incidence of COVID-19. Is that correct? Yes, they have, uh, they have Staten Island as the, the highest borough of COVID-19. Um, it's, it's usually linked to political status, which it shouldn't. I'd like to go on record and say that. As far as I know, the, vac- uh, the, uh, the virus has no political affiliation. It doesn't identify as Republican or Democrat. It, it identifies as a virus. So it doesn't matter what we tend to vote for on Staten Island. And I think that that's crazy. That's usually what the Times went with and that they did. They, they started off with that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's not a thing that happens. So, yes, we do have a higher rate, uh, according to the data in, in New York City, but I got to be honest, I don't feel like we're being overran, but that's that's where I'm standing at right now. Your country, very much like our country, very much like New Zealand, very much like England, just all like the Western world. And they all have basically the same narrative, don't they? I mean, you've got to wear your mask. and We know masks don't work unless you wear the, the perfect ones in a, a hazmat uh, costume. Uh, we know the vaccines um, sort of work, but not really. And the implications later on and the complications later on. Uh, a fairly scary to say the least. Tell me this: you, you've, you, you're a medical professional. Have you ever seen such a health campaign that pretends to be all about your health, but is least about your health and more about something else? So the campaign—it's really wild. Uh, what do you think the the end result is? Because it's not about health. I mean, Delta is not. Uh, it's a transmissible, uh, highly transmissible, but it is not as dangerous except for those who are vulnerable or the elderly. So we can manage it very easily. So what do you, what do you think? What's, what's the underlying factor here globally? Um, so globally, I couldn't even begin to get into it. Um, but what I do notice is this is where the lapse in judgment comes. I've said this in interviews already. If everybody was pre-treated for cholesterol at the age of 18 and you had to go and get a shot or a medication that wasn't actually correct for your diagnosis, it would be a malpractice suit. And what's happening right now is we're pre-treating some, uh, we're pre-treating the entire world. That's the goal for something that for most people is a very bad cold or virus. For most people, I say that. And so I go, I always, I always defer to my own cdc.gov statistics. If you look at the numbers, they never tell you the survivability rate. And that, that's done on purpose. They don't want people to go on the website and see that last week it was 98.3% survivable. The other thing is they tell you how many people have been infected and then they tell you how many people have died. So you have to, you have to go and do the math. You have to do the division and get your percentile out of it. The thing, the variable that's missing in all of this is the deaths include presumed deaths 
And the ones that are confirmed and presumed also majority of them have comorbidities such as diabetes. Uh, they're, they're older, they're overweight, they have all of that. And then the people that you have as confirmed infections leave out one very big thing, asymptomatic and people that weren't tested. So if you go back into, in, into the time machine and you go back to 2019, the first week of December, right before, so you, you, there's no COVID in the United States that we knew of. But if you check the blood work of, of uh, donated blood by Red Cross, they found antibodies. So this whole time that we existed in November, the infection was going around and that's in November. So the infection during the holidays, like for Thanksgiving, families were getting together to the point that people had it, recovered, didn't even know there was a, was a COVID-19 outbreak in the United States. They then forward went on to donate blood, and now their blood has the antibodies to prove that they had been previously infected by, by the coronavirus. So all of this knowledge, we're pre-treating people on a wide scale, and the survivability rate is definitely higher than 98.3% because we're not factoring in the large amount in the community that never even knew they were infected or asymptomatic. And we're, the deaths include a lot of presumed. Then if you go into comorbidities, you break it down, it's even less. So someone like me, to be pre-treated and take a risk of a, of a vaccine that does not have long-term results that are possible, that can be, I'm going to say this on air. Are you ready? Antibody-dependent enhancement. I've said this on every newscast I've talked to and every newscast proceeded to cut that because they don't want anybody to know that term. And I work with medical professionals. I, and this is the term that we all talk about. You want to know what the resistance is, what, what our group is? It's based on that. That's step one right there. Right now in Israel, that's spreading because they might be showing signs of anti, uh, anti antibody dependent enhancement. And with, with, with that happening, one would take a big step back and go, wait, scientific data is proving that this vac vaccination is dropping in efficacy through the roof. It was down to 42% last week. Now they're saying it's somewhere in the 30 percentile. And it's getting approved by our FDA. Mm. So as things are getting worse, they're rushing the approval through. I couldn't tell you how this happened. And again, the other thing is CDC VAERS. Can you see how big this book is? That's front and back pages. I printed this myself. I ran reports off the VAERS website, which anybody can do. Mm. That's a percent of a percent of a percent. Because when you ask for that data, there's too many lines of data. They can't actually compile the report because there's that much information about adverse reactions. We're talking over half a million adverse reactions. We're talking over 11,000 deaths. Mm. And you're trying to tell me that the FDA went through all of this, saw which ones were actually relevant, which ones were fake, because anybody could report to the CDC. The thing here is when they tell you that it is scientifically safe, my question is not the amount of people that it was administered to. It's the other variable, time. That's how you find out about long-term effects. We only have 18 months of data since the first person sat down and took the first injection in the trial. So we don't know how this goes over to babies in five years. We don't know how this goes over a massive scale of birth defects. They're just starting to do this with the NIH. They're just starting to look into this type of data. They're starting trials on pregnant women, but mm. yet it's safe and effective. You tell me how. Tell me this, uh, are large numbers of staff prepared to leave their jobs over this? And what would that mean for, say, for example, service levels at your hospital? Okay, so right now it's been two and a half weeks since I started the Telegram chat. I was in New Orleans 
beautiful city in the U.S., my favorite city in the U.S. And I was coming home, so I was online for security at the airport. And I realized we had a WhatsApp group that kind of went viral. We were up to 2.30, and I was like, we're going to max out because I believe it's 257 people that you can have on WhatsApp. So I decided to take the phone out, load up up a new app. 200,000 people can get on this. And I was like, this is where we're going to organize. We're going to get the entire country involved. And we, we, we did. We we're up to 700 people and we grow new members every day. Mm. There's doctors, there's management, um, there's New Yorkers, there's Californians, there's uh, Floridians, uh, people from Iowa, Chicago. It's going. And it's gotten to the point now with everything that's gone on with, with these news articles that teachers in the Department of Education in New York have reached out to me. So bring it on. Today, I've had, I had a news reporter that worked with me reach out on behalf of their family They want me to start a resistance for the airlines. I am going to organize everybody that I can possibly organize because the one thing, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I'm seeing the videos in Australia. um, There's one thing that when they come to squash any type of resistance, it's numbers that get you places. Mm. And uh, I have to throw a shout out. You're going to know what I'm talking about. And Danny Presti actually asked me to tell you this. We have to shout out the guy who was riding up and down with the horse rallying up the, the, the protesters. Um, the, lone, the Lone Ranger. The lo- applaud him, the Lone Ranger. We, 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 we might have to put him on a T-shirt here. Much respect ha- to the Lone but Ranger. But he, re- he has just received a $7,000 fine. And you know what? These fines, I don't know how they're going to be handled in Australia, but in New York, they've issued tons of fines. Mm. And it's all caught up in the, co- uh, in the, in the court system. And again, you have, if you win, it goes, they, they appeal it. It goes, uh, to, to the, the next phase of judges, which have been hand selected by the governor. So for the past several years, Andrew Cuomo's goons, as I refer to them. And you, you, you start to see how these systems need to be voted on by the people, not the people that are put in power that get too drunk on power. So. Mm. As of right now, you have all these fines, but nobody's really paying them because they're not based in law. They're based in mandates. And again, Mm. Governor Cuomo went on TV and said, I can't make mandates. I can't force people to wear masks. I I just said it, and they did the right thing. They try to wash their hands of it post-haste, but in, in, in the lead up to it, they go and they tell you what they what they want and that it's that it's a law and that you're going to be fined. They've issued fines for this, even though they claim they can't. So we're playing a strange game. It's a strange psychological game. If somebody wants to find out more about what you're doing, how do they do that? Uh, they would go to my Instagram. So my Instagram is pretty simple. Uh, it's at we the people are the news. As I told you, I'm looking into independent journalism as, as an avenue um, right now. My career is up in the air, even if they let me back in. So they, they suspended me. Again, they, they, they claim that I dropped a banner off of the roof that says, we will not comply, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they told me I was in, I was in the, uh, the meeting with the head of security. They told me that they have two eyewitnesses that saw me up there at 1215 dropping the banner that they chased me across the roof. I sounded like like <laughs> Jason Bourne or Jack Bauer. They told me I parkoured, I was jumping between air conditioners and cooling units, and I scaled down one staircase and I came up the other. I've never been on the roof. And the staircases that they claim are, are armed with fire alarms, and there's no camera that proves that there was even another person on the roof. 
But there is a camera that proves I was on the street during that time. I was interviewing with Newsmax, and I have uh, multiple timestamp footage, pictures and footage, and I put that up. It's actually the most recent post on my Instagram. So I disproved them, yet I still have heard nothing back from Northwell. It's, it's, they're trying to silence me. That's what's happening. From a medical professional to a stuntman, what more? You're living the dream. Uh, John, thank you very much. I suppose. Thank you. Thank you for having me. John, thank you very much. Great chatting. We'll do this more often. Uh, And all the best with uh, your future employment. Uh, Either you'll be back at the hospital or you'll forge away. You have this great career in in journalism, and I'm sure you'll do very well in both. Thank you very much. I I think I will. Thank you. Have a great day. How often have we heard that we rely on the data and follow the health advice from the professionals almost every second of the day from government. Now, isn't that the reason why our freedoms have been taken away from us? It's for our own good and for our safety. Well, in the US, it's no secret that VAERS, America's early warning system that supposedly monitors the safety of vaccines, is not telling us the real story. The Truth for Health Foundation A U.S. public charity has announced an international panel of experts for a citizen's vaccine safety review board. The board chaired by Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Paul Alexander, both internationally known experts with experience in FDA drug safety monitoring, will analyse the data on vaccine deaths and injuries in the U.S. and report directly to the public in complete transparency. This is a response to the failure of VAERS and government agencies such as the CDC and FDA to provide timely and transparent information on COVID-19 vaccine deaths and injuries. The public will be asked to report vaccine adverse events directly to the Citizens Vaccine Safety Review Board. Dr. Vliet, thank you for joining us once again. You're so welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Thank you. Can you tell us about a new initiative of the Truth and Health Foundation concerning vaccine deaths and injuries? Yes, absolutely. Truth for Health Foundation is a public charity who is charged with serving the public interest, has just launched a new initiative, to, and we are convening a Citizens Vaccine Safety Advisory Committee because the FDA has failed miserably in its duty to the public and actually decided not to convene the usual advisory committee, safety review and public comment that has traditionally always been done for new products that they are considering approving. And so Dr. Peter McCullough, and Dr. Paul Anders Alexander, two world-class experts on COVID, on vaccine safety, on drug safety monitoring board procedures. Both of them have served on FDA panels in the past. Dr. McCullough has served on 24 separate drug safety monitoring boards. And they are chairing the initiative that Truth for Health Foundation is launching now to be the citizen's voice, to have citizen input into their experiences with the experimental COVID shots. And I say experimental because 
the FDA really has not done its proper due diligence on the safety evaluation. And they are foisting this continued clinical trial on the public who are now the guinea pigs for a massive experiment. So these agents that have many risks and the whistleblowers have been coming out of the woodwork to talk to us, hospital workers, hospital nurses, critical care nurses, hospital physician assistants, outpatient nurses, doctors, telling us what they've been seeing with the devastating damage, medical risk, complications following vaccination with these COVID shots. So we've decided to compile the data that people submit to us, look at the public record on the safety data, and present our reports to the public from a panel of world experts on this. I will be primarily a facilitator for the process. We are actually convening a panel of vaccine researchers, epidemiologists, clinical specialists, and research academic physicians in a variety of specialties. So we are going to be the voice of the people that the, our own government agencies have failed to do. What experts will be involved and will the information be treated and presented differently to the VAERS reports? The experts that will be involved are people like Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. Robert Malone has agreed to with us on this project. And Dr. Paul Alexander, Dr. Alan Moy, who is a leading vaccine researcher and the co-founder of Cellular Technologies, developing non-human aborted fetal stem cells as a basis for vaccines. He also is the co-founder of the John Paul II Medical Research Institute, looking at vaccine safety and vaccine data. And we have specialists in maternal fetal medicine, reproductive immunology, pathology, internal medicine, nephrology, cardiology, neurology. And we will be pulling people together in all of these different areas to look at the reports that have been filed in theirs, as well as reports coming in from the public. Now, we also have whistleblowers who are currently under federal whistleblower protection in the United States and have filed affidavits with federal court in lawsuits against the Health and Human Services Department. Mm -hmm. And those whistleblowers have access to the data from theirs and from other federal databases that they are tracking and releasing information to us that has been covered up. How long before uh, the public sees the first report? That's, we are working as fast as we can to get mm. this information out, and we anticipate having a preliminary report no later than the end of September. Not far away. It's only uh, a couple of weeks away. Yes, that's true. And we are working round the clock on getting as much done as quickly as possible because lives are at stake. 
And the more that we have help from the public in the United States, as well as Australia and other countries around the world, Mm -hmm. the more we have people contacting us with information that they know about injuries, about complications, about deaths, the more we can begin to compile a report that will be meaningful to the public. So we ask people to go to truthforhealth.org. There is an area under the treatment tab on the home page called My Story. And we would like people to put their report of what they have observed, what they've experienced. And we have a team of volunteers who who are working to compile that. Interesting. I'm just, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, those that have had the, the vaccine. We call it the jab or the shot, whatever you want to call it. Um, the informed consent really wasn't there because they weren't really informed. It was just what the, the narrative was from, from government, big pharma, big tech, media, guy down the road selling milk bottles probably. But the, um, so when this information comes out to show you that these vaccines can be quite deadly, you've had the people already who've taken the vaccine who probably wouldn't have had the vaccine if they had known that information in the first place. If you were a lawyer, how busy do you think you'll be for the next 10, 20 years? Well, I I think if we have courageous lawyers who will stand up for the patients, Mm -hmm. right now they've been in short supply, just like doctors have not stood up for their patients in many situations. I think there there will be a lot of liability for employers that are mandating these COVID shots and they are the employers and churches and schools are not immune from lawsuit in the United States. I can't speak for other countries. It's only the manufacturers and the federal government that have immunity. Mm. Private businesses are not immune from damage suits if they mandate these shots, which many are doing, and people have complications, and our data analysis, which fits the pattern we're already seeing, shows the correlation, these employers are going to be on the hook for millions of dollars in damages. Mm. And I think they're being very foolish to mandate that their employees get these shots. It needs to be a choice, and people need to have accurate information on the risk and they don't have it yet now the good news for those who've gotten the shot and who may have complications we are treating the complications of these vaccines in much the same way that we treated early covid with the same combination of medicines anti-inflammatory antiviral anticoagulants, and nutraceuticals because the mechanism of injury with the experimental COVID shots is the spike protein that those COVID shots are tricking your body into making billions of them, and that is what is toxic and damaging. That's what was damaging 
in the COVID illness. Hmm. So for the people who've gotten the shot, it's not as if there isn't going to be help available for complications. Our job is to educate the public and the health professionals that there's treatment for those complications. I'm treating many of my patients who got the shot. They went ahead and got it because of community pressure, family pressure, job pressure, even though I had told them that their particular medical history contraindicated it, they were pressured into getting it, and now many of them are having complications, so I'm treating the complications. Uh, If somebody wants to find out more about the organization right now, how do they do that? It's www.truthforhealth.org, and click on the press conferences that we've been doing, which Mm. are page, click on the treatment tab, and you will see the various categories of treatment options. Click on vaccine news. You'll see our updates there. We have legal resources for patients with template letters that they can use to help with employer mandates. We have a wealth of resources to help people in their decision making. Dr. Vliet, thank you very much. You are so welcome. Jason Olborn is a former TV producer who is now a citizen journalist with an interest in unearthing hidden facts from official data, such as Australia's TGA COVID-19 vaccine safety reports. Jason is the founder of A Billion Mums for Informed Consent. Now, Jason's been studying the latest reports by the TGA on vaccine safety. Jason, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Great to be here today. Look, the hysteria climbed up a couple of notches this week. Is this being reflected in the statistics? Well, Mike, it's fairly um, obvious that the government has lost its mind. Uh, The hysteria that we're seeing in the news is unbelievable. I mean, the mental health crisis looming in New South Wales is catastrophic. You can't get figures on anything to do with uh, suicide rates that resemble anything close to accurate. You've got uh, police handing fines out hand over fist. I had a personal friend this week be arrested in Newcastle for filming somebody else being arrested and thrown to the ground where it appeared that that a lady had her hip broken. Um, It's crazy. So you'd have to think, well, maybe it really is out of control. So in my weekly reporting this week, the first statistic I give out is um, how many people have got COVID in Australia, and that number is still 99.95% with slightly over 10,000 cases. Approaching today will be more like 12,000, but that still means that we're well over 99.9% of the country does not have COVID. Beyond that, the survival rate, which is the only number that really counts, has actually improved in the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, it was 97.2%. Last week, I reported 97.5%. And this week, if you get COVID in Australia, you are, regardless of how old you are, of what your comorbidities are, what your health status is, you are a 97.8% chance of survival. Now, 
to add, add more information, more interesting information on top of that, when you remove the biggest single form of death in Australia, and that is uh, as um, a result of what happened last year in Victoria when Daniel Andrews completely destroyed the quarantine scenario in the hotels that led to the 655 deaths in aged care in Victoria, if you adjust those figures, we're talking about fewer than 350 deaths in all of Australia out of 44,000 cases, and suddenly the overall survival rate in Australia is 99.2%. This is flu-like. It's extraordinary. So the hysteria still does nowhere near match what's going on out there in the community. If we look even closer at the figures, if you're under 50, your chance of survival is 99.97% if you get infected with COVID. And if you are under 70, it's 99.83% chance of survival, which basically means that 1.7 people out of every 1,000 who catch COVID in Australia under the age of 70 will die. That's how low the numbers are. So, no, the hysteria does not match. What else are we not being told? Well, Mike, this is a really, really interesting question. And for me... This week, I decided to uh, contact my super company to find out what was going on in terms of life insurance, if you were to die from COVID, whether you could die from the COVID vaccine, or in fact, if you were to die from a COVID isolation suicide. Now, on the Australian super website, it says because COVID is now recognised by the World Health Organisation, well, thank God for that, because who else but a private organisation determines the health policies of every government in the world but a private organisation. But uh, according to that information, regardless of uh, the reasoning, there are no exemptions. So I rang Australian super to confirm it, and they said, well, yes, if you die from COVID, your life insurance is valid. I said, what if you die from the vaccine? They said, well, it would be valid, um, but obviously they would have to say it was from the vaccine or technically it wouldn't matter because you've died anyway. And uh, if you die from suicide, they said, we don't cover suicide. I said, what if it's a COVID isolation suicide? And they said to me that that would have to be determined. So I said, does that mean what, you leave a note? What other proof could there actually be? So interestingly that the insurance companies leave that little tiny bit of grey area there. However, I went to the NRMA, Australia's largest insurer, and on their website, it says very clearly that as of April 2021, they no longer offer new life insurance policies. Now, any actuary worth his salt would know the same numbers that I just reported to you in that in the life insurance buying um, market, which is under 70s, because you can't buy life insurance if you're aged over 70, so you've got a new policy. Um, life expectancy is 99.83% survival with COVID. So it's not COVID that the actuaries are worried about when they're looking for a pathway to profit from their life insurance products. It can only be that after April 2021, they were concerned that the vaccine might be actually shortening lives rather than extending them, which made the way that they can no longer find a pathway to profit and have suspended all new life insurance products, which to me is an astounding um, piece of information that's telling us that the statistics are not showing us what the actuaries know. It's a bit like when people say you don't bet against the bookie. 
and insurance companies are using actuaries to work out the real odds of life. Mm-hmm. The, the other interesting uh, piece of information that came out today are reports that the um, online um, website stays where you, uh, you know, Airbnb, those types of places where you rent a, um, a house from somebody, a private uh, scenario, they are now ordering the refunds in New South Wales, in regional New South Wales, for people who've booked holidays over the Christmas period into January. So stays are saying don't take deposits, give the money back, and that can only mean that they have been told that we will be in lockdown well into next year. So they're the numbers that they're not telling us that are very important that you need to know what's actually going on out there in the real world, and then you correlate back to how things trajectory, how they how they move into different areas, mm-hmm. and work out mm-hmm. the um, and where this what the stats actually mean to us. What is the TGA reporting this week then in terms of adverse reactions, and can we compare COVID risk to vaccine safety? Well. To start with the fir- the last question first, I think we can compare COVID risk mm. to vaccine safety. And the most logical way to do that is to look at adverse reaction reporting rates per thousand and compare that with the survival rates of COVID per thousand and then break that down into different age groups. In other words, If I am at a very low risk of dying from COVID, given my age and fitness level, then vaccine injury should be something that I really consider, given that I don't really have a risk of dying from COVID. So if we look at the numbers overall, the TGA this week went over 50,000 adverse reaction reports officially received. There are obviously many that are not received uh, from the TGA. Out of those, they report a vaccine injury reporting rate of 3.3 per thousand. But as uh, mentioned earlier, the survival rate of under 70s in Australia is 1.7 out of a thousand will die from COVID under the age of 70. So in other words, you are twice as likely under the age of 70 in Australia if you get jabbed to, to report a vaccine injury than you are to die from COVID. Now, if you're under 50 and that rate is 0.3, you are 11 times more likely to report a vaccine injury than you are to die from COVID. Now, according to the TGA, 460 people have died post-jab. However, the TGA does not determine that all those people died because of the jab. In fact, they go on to claim that 453 of those 460 people who died post-vaccine died coincidentally of something else. Mm. And that's 98.4% of the um, population in that sense, in that sample, that have died coincidentally. So I'm wondering, if I'm a doctor, what would be something that I would look at to go, well, I'm still going to give you the jab, Um, terminal cancer, um, lung disease, uh, heart failure, what kind of people that are dying shortly after the vaccine but not from the vaccine, is it that it's doing something to their bodies that they're that fragile? And why would I risk that? This is a question I've got for doctors that I want to know what doctors are actually thinking in the moment because that's a very, very high number. Meanwhile, seven officially have died from um uh from the vaccine six of those to tts Mm -hmm. which is uh blood clotting uh thrombosis thrombocytopenia syndrome and that is considered a vaccine injury itself 
So it's getting very, very serious. And of course, the big news that's come out this week is the story of more than one HSC year 12 student in uh, Sydney dying from the vaccine, whether it be from Kudos Arena or elsewhere. But reports are showing us from multiple sources that this is being confirmed. So we are waiting for mainstream news and the coroner to come out and tell us what we really need to know. And the fact that it's not mainstream front page news is extremely telling. The informed consent really isn't there because we're not being informed. Well, well, that's exactly right. And look, it's it's further uh, pressured by uh, when you've got two politicians now, Mike. You've got Victor Dominello, who had the vaccine and uh, developed uh, Bell's palsy that he's now hiding behind a, an eye patch. And now Richard uh, Miles yesterday is another one to report it to have quite a, um, a severe case of Bell's palsy mm. that obviously has come from the vaccine. Now, whether or not they're going to deny it, but it's astounding that a man or two men elected to public office would choose to not say anything about clearly um, a vaccine that has maimed them. Mm. And if you are considering um, having the jab and you are not being told fully of the risks, there needs to be people held to account for suppressing vital information. I sure as hell, when I look at the details of what is a COVID symptom versus what is a vaccine injury symptom, Mm -hmm. and they don't compare. Um, sore throat, runny nose, cough versus Bell's palsy, TTS and possible death. Mm. There is no comparison for me as a person under the age of 50 Um, and certainly as a father of children, I will be informing my children of the risks and explaining to them that um, as children, I'm their father and as adults, they get to make their own informed consent. Mm. It's also the reason why we have set up this this movement called Million Mums for Informed Consent, who, by the way, in our first month, we've just gone over 10,000 members and we are flying. Um, we couldn't be more proud of what we've achieved and a group of very, very active women mm. who are working extremely hard behind the scenes, informing each other, sharing uh, information, comparing notes and readying for a world that seems to be embracing discrimination again as if it's a new idea. Mm. So our mums are looking at ways to homeschool. They're looking at ways of dealing with grief. They're looking at ways of uh, getting more informed at home, of becoming more self-sufficient and empowering themselves. And it's a really great uh, place to come to get new information and access to um, even legal pro forma documents that will help you um, engage with your employer and or your children's school mm-hmm. when you know that their rights are being challenged in a way that's not, not legal at all. Now, if somebody wants to find out more about this, how would they do that? Well, the first place to go is directly to our website, amillionmums.com. Very easy to find. But also on our Facebook page, A Million Mums for Informed Consent. If you're on Facebook, you can look there. Equally, you can check out our news reports on our page, World Series News Underground. And uh, you can look for me on Facebook, of course. And uh, if there's room on my page, would love to uh, be able to uh, communicate and, uh, and, and link up. Jason Olborn, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike.